Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Hello, Smart Money Tree Podcast listeners. Welcome to this week's show. My name is Kirk Chisholm, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm joined with my good friend, Doug Hagerin. Hey, Doug. Good morning, Kirk. How are you doing today? Doing time. great. Long time no see. Hey, any chance you got out there to catch one of the 13 states that was supposedly going to get Aurora Borealis the last week based on data that the mass media decided to push out there? It turned out to be completely false. But did you go out there, run out there, try to see the heavens? Fortunately, Doug, I don't watch the media. So I had no idea that was even a thing. Which is good because most of the insiders that understand how the Aurora Borealis work were like, what is this coming from? Somebody in Alaska basically said 13 states are going to see the Aurora Borealis this week. And everybody was, you know, they just took it like most news articles. It just started to be replicated and spread and spread and spread. And then all the insiders are going, what? This couldn't be further from the truth. But, you know, Sorry for those that put on clothes at midnight, packed their cars up, drove long distances only to find a nice black sky. That can be relaxing too, Doug. Maybe somebody in Alaska saw Russia from their porch. Maybe those 13 states were in Russia or in Canada. Who knows? It's a good segue into a topic. We're going to talk about mindset things here is the media. And I know people rip on the media. You know, Trump was calling fake news. I don't think he was wrong. I think it's all propaganda and BS. And the funny thing is, is there's usually two sides to this. One side says, oh, this is true. And the other side said, no, no, it's false. It's fake. And if you really understand how and why the news works now, you'll understand a little bit better about why I don't watch any news. Now, here's the thing. There was a time decades ago, probably 40, 50 years ago, where the news was more or less reliable, right? Walter Cronkite, everyone relied on this old guy and they thought he was a great newscaster and it was before my time, so I can't speak to it. But a lot of people really depended on him as a voice of truth in the news. And the problem is, is when the internet came out, it gave people access to information instantly, anywhere they want in the world. And it was such a strong thing that people became news themselves. They became newscasters, right? Bloggers, websites, influencers, all these people are now, quote unquote, providing news. You know, people say, no, that's not news. I know some people are a lot smarter than people in the news. And there's obviously a lot of people that aren't. But the point is, is anybody can make or break news nowadays because it's so easy and prevalent. Now, the problem is, is the media had a monopoly on the major media is what I mean, is had a monopoly on the news and people's eyeballs. But when the Internet came out, they started to lose those eyeballs. And instead of buying newspapers, people wanted to see it online. Well, you can't charge 500 bucks a year for a newspaper when online you can only charge maybe like 50 bucks a year because that's the nature of it. And so a lot of these media companies started to lose money or they weren't making as much. I won't say they were necessarily losing, but they weren't making as much. Their margins got trimmed. They had to lay off people and they had to really cut the fat. And when I mean cut the fat, I don't mean these people were useless, but they cut a lot of people that, for example, a friend of mine was working for one of the major media companies. And she said a number of years ago, they cut all of their investigative reporters, all of them. They don't have anybody on staff who's an investigative reporter anymore. If they need to do a piece, they outsource it to somebody who consults, who basically will write a piece. So what they're doing now is they're basically, they're fighting for eyeballs. They're providing clickbait. And these reporters or writers over at some of these companies, 
they're paid to crank out articles and time is of essence. They need to get something out there. Quality is secondary to it. And what's worse is when you're trying to provide clickbait because you need eyeballs, because that's how their business model works now. Not saying they're good or bad. I'm just saying that's the business model. If you want to compete, you need eyeballs. If you want to do that, you got to provide clickbait. So all these news articles out there are effectively clickbait with a title. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head, but they come out with some title and it's completely wrong. It's not even associated with the article. And then the article talks about something completely different. It happens all the time. And some people are saying, well, I don't understand. Like these people are speaking my language. They get me. Well, the problem is, is you're correct. They do get you, which is why they're speaking to what's in your head. So Republicans have Fox News. The Democrats have MSNBC and CNN. There's these news media publications have fractured into their sides. So they appeal to their audience and they tell their audience what they want to hear. And so what's interesting is it used to be a time where like these two sides and people said, no, 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 there's not two sides. There's always been two sides. There's two sides to the issue. And that's okay, right? You'd hear the Republican side, see the Democratic side, and they would fight and they'd argue against the other side. And that was kind of provide a lot of friction. And then what happened a few years ago is both sides are in their own silos. There is news that one side will hear, the other side doesn't even hear. Take the Hunter laptop, for example. Like I know it existed and I didn't follow it, don't really care. But the point is, is what I do know is one side was talking about it, the other side didn't even hear it on their channel. Forget the story that I just mentioned. The point is, is they're hearing news that the other side isn't hearing, so you're getting isolated information. Now, this is going to bias your thinking. Now, I'm going to wrap all this back in the markets. When you're reading news and hearing news and seeing news, you're seeing a biased opinion because they're trying to get eyeballs. They're trying to clickbait you to read their articles so that they can pay their advertisers. All of this is around their business model, which it's not like they're trying to lie to you. There's not some big grand conspiracy. It's just capitalism. They're trying to make money. And the best way to make money is to promote fear and to scare their pants off people so they continue to watch their TV. Oh my God, this is happening. You better watch so that you know what's going on. There's nothing going on, but they create these situations so that you continue to watch. This is the media industry. You can argue one side's better, it doesn't matter. They all do it. They all understand the principles or they wouldn't exist anymore because they would be run out of the competition. They would run them out of business. So understand that all the news is biased and that's why it's biased, okay? So when you see stuff, you're only seeing half of it. And if you don't believe me, find a celebrity or a famous person you happen to know. And here's an example. A buddy of mine was telling me this. He said, it really rang true in my head because one day I saw a story about myself that was false, complete nonsense. And he wasn't justifying it. He's like, where do these people get this information? This isn't even remotely true. And he's like, I see these stories all the time now. They're constantly coming out with stories about famous people. They're not true. So the epiphany he had is he said, this person doesn't know me and they're writing a story about me. How much else out there is completely made up? Now, I know for, I think it was April uh, 15th in 2011, I think it was, when gold crashed. It hit a peak and then it crashed on, it was, I remember because it was tax day. And I remember reading a bunch of articles. This is why gold crashed. Fat finger trade. It's because people are taking money out to pay their taxes. They came up with all this garbage. It was China. Like there were so many excuses. And what ran through my mind because I was following the gold market very closely is 
How would anybody know any of these? You couldn't verify this. Unless you have somebody say, I did a fat finger trade, you can't verify that. If Unless somebody from China came out and said, yeah, I bought a billion dollars of gold, you can't verify that. Unless they survey a bunch of people, you can't verify they took it out for taxes. Now, in my opinion, following the market closely at the time, none of that was true. I didn't even need to read the article. I just say, this doesn't make sense. And I was thinking about it. I was like, what actually caused this? Well, what I came up with was there's no way to determine, and there's probably a handful of people that would even know. And they would be in the bowels of the financial system who are looking at all the trades and where they came from. What probably happened is it was probably a trade. It went below a certain amount, a certain price, triggered a sell, and that sold the price down, which triggered more sales, which triggered more sales. So it was probably just kind of like a coincidence of events that caused this sell-off. But nobody would know that. There's no way to know it unless you're in there checking every single trade and verifying this, and nobody is doing that because there's no reason to. So understand that what you're getting from the media is biased, and it's typically not even true. There's a shred of truth, like you said, Doug, like, oh, they get this story, and then they create this other story out of this story because the original story is not really enticing. So like, eh, maybe there's... Uh, 1% of 1% chance we'll see an Aurora Borealis. And they're like, oh my God, we're going to see it. It's going to be 10 states. It's going to be great. That's normal in the media now. So you just keep that in the back of your mind when you're reading stories. If you read them at all, I don't, I don't read them because of this, because it will bias your thinking. And if you ever get freaked out and anxious about the news and what's going on in the world, here's a trick. Turn off the news for a week. Turn off social media and the news for a week. Don't read it. Don't watch it. Give your mind a break. And at the end of that week, go back and turn on the TV, and I guarantee you didn't miss a thing. I did this for a few clients, and I said, do this, because I know you're feeling anxious. Turn it off for a week, and let me know how it works. And they're like, I feel awesome. I came back, and I didn't miss anything. They're still talking about the same crap they are talking about a week ago. That's what happens. If you really kind of dive into the media and how the machine works, you'll realize that nothing new really happens. They just have different stories to bait you into watching them. So just keep that in the back of your mind as you're looking at these stories so that you can filter a little bit more mindfully. What we're trying to teach you is mindfulness, how to see things in a different light so you don't get triggered into the emotional response, which is what they're trying to trigger. Go ahead, Doug. Actually, Kirk, here's a great example. I know we talked a little bit this before. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this today, but the labor statistics, the labor report that came out, the jobs report. Basically, just for anybody, non-farm payroll employment increased by 2009 in June, and the unemployment rate changed little at 3.6%. Here's the reality of it. If we take a look at the non-farm payroll employment over the month change, seasonally adjusted, it went down a little bit. The rate of hiring employment went down a little bit. But yet, if you compare that to December 2022, the employment change, it really has been flat, if not much of an impact over the next of the last couple of months and quarters. It just kind of goes up and down. It's really a non-factor news story, but here's the reality of what's being put out there in the markets. US labor market cooled off in June, adding just 2009 jobs. There's other reports. There's a hidden recession red flag in the latest jobs report. The jobs report shows that the economy is weakening. This is all titled and to get you to want to click on, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. Because then you're going to click and read the article. And as soon as you click and read the article, the data, the digital data captures that. And they're able to tell their advertisers, see, we get people to come here, buy more advertising. 
That's all it's about. Listen, nobody ever got in the business to give you news. That's a falsity. Did NBC get in the business to give you television? Of course not. It costs billions of dollars to produce content. That's why shows like Cheers almost didn't make it, right? Because after one season, it doesn't get the ratings and they can't. It. There's tons of shows where, you know, it's like, wow, I can't believe they canceled that. And now years later, it's a cult following, you know, Arrested Development, great example, got terminated after one or two seasons. All of a sudden, people discovered it, loved it, and Netflix brought it back. But why did it get canceled? Because it costs a lot of money to make shows. And these networks, they produce that not because they like making content. They produce it to get your eyes to watch it so that they can sell advertisers the numbers of people watching. And they are really in the business of advertising. And you have to remember that with any kind of news. The only reason the evening news is on NBC, ABC, CBS, the only reason that online news is published and put out there is to get your eyeballs on it. And once your eyeballs are on it, they can sell that to advertisers to pay the money. They're in the advertising business. Look at how the unemployment rate seasonally adjusted has barely moved the needle since 2022. So it jumped up what? I could barely see the jump between March 2023 and June 2024. Most people would not call this a catastrophic shift in unemployment, but immediately it gives them something to put out a new headline to get a monthly subscriber viewing that is going to be able to allow them to turn around and get advertising. And there's only so many eyeballs out there and there's only so many advertisers that are going to pay money. And so everybody is in this race to get the eyeballs quicker, which is another reason you have to be concerned these days about the news. Again, you know, Kirk, you're not that young. Walter Cronkite was on the air when we were little. We did get a chance to see him for a couple of years. And it was very dry, very to the point. He presented the news. Nowadays, most of the stuff that we see is either op-ed, which means that they are slanting it for opinion editorial. And they used to tell you it was an op-ed. You'd be able to get a little bit of a disclaimer saying, listen, this is just us writing an opinion on this. They don't tell you that anymore. The other thing that has happened, unfortunately, one of the downsides of the digital age is our attention spans are shorter and shorter and shorter. And ultimately, what that means is where they used to go and they used to actually do some due diligence on an article and put out the data and state it in a certain way or make sure they had the answer and the information, at least somewhat researched and correct, before they put it out to the public. A lot of that's changed now because in the time it might take, let's just say, a prudent, diligent service to do the work that necessary to validate the data somebody else is already going to go out there and slam it to the internet. And if they already slammed it to the internet, by the time the diligence service publishes it, those eyeballs are gone. It's almost feasting on itself. The amount of balance that they are struggling with between diligent research before publishing and speed to publishing. And guess what's winning, people? Speed to publishing. And that's why you're starting to see now a trend over the last couple of years where articles will get pushed. And then a couple of days later, what happens, Kirk? Reputable places will come back and say, you know what? We've got new information. We're changing it. But how many times have we also seen articles where they just do a silent editorial revision? All of a sudden, if you could capture the original article three days ago and then capture the article now, the headlines changed, the data inside it's changed, and no mention of updated information. So the problem is that we are facing 
a battle to get your eyeballs to sell to advertisers. And we're also facing that with this day and age where it used to be just basically your local newspaper and three major news sources. Now you're competing with anybody with the internet can put something out there. And that has created even greater speed to get things published without necessarily the due diligence. And again, they have to make sure that this is going to catch your eyeballs. And that's always been the case. If you go back to William Randolph Hearst, yellow journalism, what could they do? It was always about sensationalism to get you to read so that they would get your eyeballs on the story and keep you glued to it so that they could sell more advertising. So again, this is a non-issue. And a lot of the data that we're seeing to push you one direction emotionally, it may want to scare you this week. And what do they do next week, Kirk? They make you feel good because you can only take someone's fear so far before then you got to comfort them. And then once you comfort them, let's go back and create more fear. And that constantly gives you a reason to be glued, which is it goes back to exactly what Kirk said. The best thing you can do, if you cannot detach yourself from that emotion, detach yourself physically, go for a walk, go enjoy nature. The birds are still chirping. Wherever you may be, the fireflies at night may be blinking. It's the middle of summer. It's the best time to see them. If you have them, go out there and disconnect from it. Because if you're getting that information for free, you remember the saying, and not everybody may know this, nobody wants to pay for subscriber services. And we're starting to see more paywalls, but there's also lots of places you can go and get free information. And there is a saying, if you are not paying for the product, you know what's the saying, Kirk? You are the product. So they're getting you there to create revenue and you are the product and they are trying to keep you engaged. One of the newest things, and I've seen this in my own household, is Reels. Reels, I believe they may have started on Instagram or Snapchat. I don't remember who started them, but now you see them on Facebook and Twitter and this and that. And they're like these, generally speaking, 30-second max video clips. You can't fast forward them. Okay, So if you want to watch them, you've got to watch them. And they are programmed so incredibly addictive to get you to just scroll. And I see this in my family, one after another, after another, after another, after another. And guess what? It's winning. You're the product. It's keeping you glued. And that's just a sign. Our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So again, we didn't want to spend a lot of time on the jobs report today, but it goes back to kind of what Kirk was talking about. This very, very benign data that came out, what happened? You can go out there and search article after article. The recession's coming. Here it is. This hidden agenda, they're telling you this data right now, unemployment has spiked, be wary. And I'm here to say couldn't be further from Yeah, the and you brought up an interesting point. I think I want to reference this because some people are probably like, ah, oh, you're wearing a tinfoil hat. You think the media is lying to you. Ben Franklin. I don't own one. Kirk does. I don't own a tinfoil hat. So I, I do. I do. I have one right here and I don't have it on my head <laughs> deliberately because this is not tinfoil hat stuff. But I did get some heavy duty foil from Costco the other day, Kirk, so I can begin to construct nice. it. Well, I, hopefully you can join me one day, Doug, with my antenna and my tinfoil hat to keep out the microchips. So I want to point this out. Benjamin Franklin had a news publication and he used it to disparage his competitor. He created stories. There's like, I forget what book it was, but it talked about some of the activities that Benjamin Franklin had. He was a wily old guy. And he created this story about his competitor and just disparaged him. And he did it, I think, anonymously. The point being is, is this is not new. The news, you know, manipulating the news, all that is not new. It is old as time itself. If you understand the history of how news has happened, you realize that this is what I would think of as a sign of the times. Walter Cronkite was a sign of the times. People wouldn't put up with BS. 
People wanted the truth. People believed in it. And if it ever came out, it wasn't true. They would be really upset. Now, nobody cares if it's true or not. And there's no consequences, which is why they were able to get away with it. So I think you have to realize that all of this stuff is a sign of the times because it's a free market and the free market goes where the free market is, right? And if it's allowed to happen, it'll happen. People stand up and say, I'm not going to do it anymore. It'll stop happening. Of course, that doesn't happen. So I'm going to use another example here. I think this is a good one. Let's talk about uh, Bitcoin for a minute. So this is Larry Fink, beautiful man. So Larry Fink has been in the news a lot because he's a big fan of telling people what to do. And he's been in the news for basically shoving ESG down people's throats that didn't want it and demanding people include it. This is not a characterization of whether ESG is good or bad. We've been on the show and I'll tell you, I think it's crap. I think the idea of it is good, but the implementation is basically Wall Street trying to steal your money. That's all it is. So there's a difference between the idea and the implementation. And Wall Street just says, oh, people want this. We're going to create a product, even though it's crap and we know it's crap. We're going to do it anyway because you're going to give us money. That's the reality of Wall Street. They're always going to do wherever the money is. So don't shoot the messenger. That's just how it works. So Larry Fink, who tried to not only create it, but promote it and shove it down people's throats, which people violently objected to so much so that certain states that objected to that pulled their pension money from Larry Fink and his company. But that's not why we're talking about Larry Fink. So the reason that I'm talking about Larry He's got $9 trillion, which is enormous for those of you who can't conceptualize $9 trillion like myself. That's a lot of money. He's poor compared to Musk, you know, and he can't buy every country he wants. To. Yeah, but most of them, most of them he's bought. Basically, he came out and said that Bitcoin and crypto will transcend international currencies due to global demand. Now, what's funny about this quote is not that he said it. It's that he was well noted as being somebody who thought Bitcoin was a joke. It's a farce. It's worth zero. And another time he came out and said it was a good idea. And then another time said it was bad. So have every other person in the financial system, not every other person, but a lot of the big names have come out and said, you know, Bitcoin's worthless. And then they'll come out another time and be like, oh, Bitcoin is going to be great. It's going to be influential and all that. All these financial people flip flop a lot. Now, the reason I bring this up is to tie it into our earlier conversation about the media. A lot of these big names try to get into the news. And what they say, people are following them. Well, why are you following Larry Fink? Now, it has nothing to do with what he believes, but he is a CEO and chairman of BlackRock. What's his job as CEO? What is any CEO's job? To be a cheerleader, to be a cheerleader for your own company. That is a big part of their job. So what is Larry Fink going to do? What he's going to say is effectively at some level going to support the activities of his company. So if his company is behind in crypto, he's going to say, ah, crypto, it's garbage. If his company has some product, hey, it's great. You should do that. You should think about this is underlying the bias of people's opinions when they're in the media. Now, I'm not suggesting 100% this is true, but I can tell you just from kind of watching the rollout of Bitcoin and crypto and the conversations around it. At the beginning, everyone's like, oh, it's garbage. And then as soon as they created some product, they're like, oh, yeah, it's a great idea. It's going to be great in the future. But when they were behind, they didn't want to admit they were behind. And at the same time, the financial system could get upended by blockchain. It's possible. It's also possible that it won't happen because they'll develop their own and they'll build it into the system, which is probably the most likely case anyway. All you cryptocurrency fans out there, I hear you complaining and say it'll never happen. It's going to happen. 
just keep in mind the fact that the banks have enormous power and control in this economy and the world. And to see them just upended as much as I know a lot of people would like to see that, I think the probability is really low that's going to happen. They will come out with some sort of product or service that will incorporate these institutions because otherwise they have no value and they're worthless and that's not going to happen. These people make way too much money for that to happen. They don't really like that. Yeah, they don't like not making money. They're there to make money. So my point is, is not, you know, what you want. But if you think about the situation, most likely this is going to be incorporated. So FedNow came out July 1st. I'm not an expert on FedNow, but my understanding is it's a payment system that is being rolled out as of, I think it was July 1st is when it started. And they will roll out another system, which off the top of my head, I can't remember, but we are going to be rolling out cryptocurrency in this country, whether it's CBDC or some other form, it's going to start to be rolled out. It is not going to be, hey, everybody use it tomorrow. It's going to be slowly rolled out and adopted. And once it's adopted widely and you can't not use it, it's going to be integrated into everything. So you should expect in the next five years that the paper currency is going to go away or it's going to be enormously minimized compared to everything else. And it's not hard for our system to incorporate that. Now, that being said, I want to point out, Doug was nice enough to send me some charts on Bitcoin. So I'm going to show these charts so that everybody can understand where things have gone and where they possibly can go. So here's a chart of Bitcoin, and I'm using Bitcoin as a conduit for the whole conversation about cryptocurrency. I don't know if Bitcoin is going to go to the moon or go go to zero or Ethereum or any of these others. That's not the point. I'm using it as an example. So here's Bitcoin. It's gone from close to zero on the chart, not zero, but it's gone close to zero on the chart. And then it just spiked up here in 2017, and then it went down and then spiked up again 2021 and part of 22, and then it's gone down. But you'll notice the trend. It's an upward sloping trend. Even when it went to the floor in the beginning of 2023, it's still an upward trend. So you have to keep in mind that this is how bull markets work. There is a bull market in Bitcoin at a secular level and a cyclical level, it is to be determined. It's rising, but it's still kind of in the downtrend temporarily. But if you look at the bigger picture, it's definitely trending up. So the government at some level, I think, has to adopt. If they take Coinbase down, that is going to be, let's say, there'll be a lot of really angry people after the SEC actually approved them to go public and now they're going to come after them. I think there's just a lot of bad precedents being sent there. But if you look at this chart and we look at some others, this is the annual chart for this year. It's done well this year. I think it's up like 100% or something. And this is in comparison to the S&P 500. So if you look at these charts, you know, this year it's obviously done a lot better. This is over, I think, the last few months. It's done less well. But if you look at these charts, what you'll see is that there are periods where it does really well, obviously, and there's periods where it massively outperforms the S&P, and then there's periods where it does very poorly, where it just crashes much worse. If you're going to get involved with things that are that volatile, you need to measure your risk. You need to manage your risk. You need to understand how much you could lose. You need to think about the fact that this could very easily go to zero. I'll actually caveat that. If you're going to invest in something this volatile, you should expect it's going to zero. I don't mean, you know, it might happen. I mean, you should plan on it going to zero. Now, the reason I say that is not because I believe it. The reason I say it is going to help your thinking 
in how you think about these type of investments. So if I'm gonna invest in something that is this volatile, this crazy, and gonna produce these kind of returns, hundreds and hundreds of percent returns already, and it could go more, what you wanna think about is, what's the worst case scenario that could happen here? Well, the worst case scenario could be it goes to zero. Okay, so does that mean it's a yes or no? Absolutely not. It is not a yes or no. Because think about it, you've got $100 in your portfolio, I'm not asking if you should put $100 into this or zero. That is a very binary type of thinking. That's not the way you should be thinking about investing. Don't think of investing as a binary approach. Think of it as shades of gray. So the way I would think about it is I have $100. How much am I willing to lose on this investment? I could make 20 times my money or I could lose it all. How much am I willing to put on that? And that's the question you should be asking. It might be 1%, 2%, 5 10 20 I mean, I wouldn't go more than 20 I think the craziest crypto people shouldn't have more than 20 But the point is, is that's your decision. Because you have to decide, I'm willing to lose 20% of my net worth for a possibility that could go up a lot. But you have to start with the risk management. If you start with the upside, you're going to bias your thinking to this is going to the moon. However, if you start the conversation with how much you could lose, you're going to bias your thinking for how much you could lose. That's the correct methodology. Because if you start there, you'd say, well, I'm only going to invest 3%. I can lose 3%. Awesome. If that's the number, then that's a number you can feel comfortable with. And assuming that you want to invest in this, of course, you know, they're making some assumptions here. But if you look at the upside, you can make 20 times your money or you could lose. You invested a dollar, you make $20 or you lose your dollar. That is a good risk reward trade off, assuming that the odds are 50 50 or some of their abouts. Great trade off, but I could still lose a dollar. People always forget to think about, oh, I could actually lose money here. Yes, expect that you'll lose money. And if you don't, everything else is gravy and you're going to be happy. That's how you should look at investments like this. I point this out because I think it's a great illustration of times where the market's high, where it's low, and it's usually around where people like Larry, who talk about their perspectives on the market and what they think is going to happen. That usually causes turns of the market. We just saw a bear market in crypto. It seems to be over. I'm not sure that it's going straight up, but it seems like the bottom is in and it may bounce around a while. Who knows? But I think it seems the bottom's in for that and everything else. And I'm going to let one more point. I'm going to let Doug go here for a bit. Something to think about. And I think this is one of the secrets of Wall Street that you're not going to hear anywhere else. You probably only hear here is that if you're thinking of investing in something, there's the investment itself. And then there's the market's perception of the investment and or pricing that it's at. So, for example, if you want to invest in Bitcoin, let's say, let's use Bitcoin as an example, right? You want to invest in Bitcoin and it's dropping and there's bad news coming out. FTX. Oh, God, FTX, all our crypto is going to be worthless or whatever they're trying to promote on TV. Bitcoin dropped a lot because of FTX. And then there was... This other exchange went under, and I can't remember all the exchanges, but this exchange went under, this exchange went under, and we're going after this, and now we're going after Coinbase. And you know all these things that are happening just keep pummeling Bitcoin's price down and down and down until it gets to a point where more bad news comes out and the price doesn't drop. Maybe the price even goes up. That's the point you want to think of buying, because what that means during that moment is all of the bad news is out. Now, it doesn't mean there won't be more bad news, but the market has discounted the price to such an extent 
that if it goes lower, people feel comfortable with it. So if news comes out, they're like, oh, that's bad. But you know what? It's not as bad as we planned in our in our algorithms and our math. So actually, this is good. Let's raise the price. So if you're looking at picking a bottom in a stock or look for bad news, but the stock price goes up, that is a really good sign that that stock has bottomed in price. It doesn't necessarily mean it's true, but the market perceives it as true, which is more important than whether it is true. Same holds true on the upside. If the market gets great news, you know, like NVIDIA came out with some great news and their stock went up like 30%, crazy stock. People were not expecting that. So the stock went way up. But let's say they did that next quarter. Let's say they said, all right, we're growing our profits another 30, 50%, whatever it is. And then the stock price goes down. It means the market already priced in a higher number than they came out with, even though it's a good number. The market exceeded that with the price. And it means the price is too high and then it drops. That's the period where you want to consider that maybe that's the top of that stock market price in the cycle. So these are indicators of how to look at the stock price and how the market is perceiving it, because the market doesn't operate on fundamentals as much as it used to. It's more on perception and feeling and emotion. So if you're seeing that, that's a great time to say, you know what, I should start taking a position here. Maybe not 100%, but let's start taking a position and build it. And when we get to a point where we feel good, okay, we feel comfortable, a lot of the bad news is out, then you should feel good about your position. Hey, Doug, did you hear? We're giving away free money. Well, I'll tell you about it in a bit. There's a saying in the mining community. Well, precious metals mining, that is. The saying is that if you want the best deals, you have to be in the room. Now, you're probably thinking, what does it mean to be in the room? Well, I'll tell you. Being in the room means that you're on the short list of people who get invited to be a part of the best deals. These are the deals that most investors will never have access to. You mean like IPOs? Nope. IPOs are chump change. Those are for retail investors, small potatoes. That's nothing compared to these deals. These deals would have you salivating to get access to them. Once you know they exist, you will never look at investing the same way again. I almost don't want to tell you they exist because it'll ruin your thinking of how the investing world really works. Now, you might be excited that these deals exist, but you only have access to the deals if you're an insider or in the room, as they call it. As loyal listeners of the show, I'm going to give you a chance to be in the room. Money Tree Investing Podcast has created the Insiders Club. This is a community of our show's members who are loyal listeners of the show and want to get more out of their investing experience. Being a part of the Insiders Club gives you insider status for upcoming events and private webinars, discounts, free stuff and books, and influence on the future direction of the show. This is an opportunity to join us as we expand our content and services. Oh, did I mention you're getting free money? Yes, in the next few weeks, I will be giving free money to members of the Insiders Club as my appreciation for listening to the show. There's no cost to join the Insiders Club. Just go to moneytreepodcast.com forward slash free money. Do that today to join the community. That's moneytreepodcast.com forward slash free money. I hope to see you in the room. Why don't you put the five-year chart for Bitcoin back up on there, if you don't mind? I want to just kind of clarify a couple of things. You threw out the word cyclical and secular. I just want people to understand what that means because not everybody will. So secular, it really means the long-term trend. Cyclical is the short-term trend. So if you look at this chart here, you'll see from the left to the right, it started very low and it has gone up to where it is currently today, but it is lower than where it was. That is a secular trend 
from the time the Bitcoin was released to where it is today as a positive bull market for Bitcoin. Now, inside that, though, there is the cyclical trend, which is basically your shorter term you know, bull or bear cycle. So you can see that it obviously, as you were saying, Kirk, it shot way up. Then all of a sudden it took a pretty nasty decline before it shot up again, took a nasty decline, bumped up a little bit, took an even nastier decline and has been climbing back. So within that, there is roughly, you know, one, two, arguably three or four cyclical bull markets. And as you said, the current one to be seen, depending on how the trend holds. And it, within that, there's also three cyclical bear markets, right? So because of that, it's important to know that one thing we've talked about in several of our conversations is where's the trend line going, right? Where's the market going to go? What did the market do between 2000 and 2013? We've talked about how it was negative for those 13 years. When we talk about the markets, we're predominantly talking about the S&P 500. You'll also kind of talk about, well, we were in a bull market between the end of the dot-com implosion, so arguably 0102, up until you know whether or not we hit the real estate recession or the broad economic recession you know right around you know 2005 2006 now again it's not like the market went straight up or straight down during any of these periods but what happened is it was almost like we're in a bull a true bull market you get to take say four steps forward and one step back it just seems like yeah you might get a bad day or a bad week but it just keeps rolling and in a bear market, a really down economy, or say that 13 years of the down market between 2000 and 2013, it's not like it went straight down. It, that is a situation where you know maybe it's three steps backward, one step forward. So what that means is there's always opportunities. We talk about you know passive investing, active investing. Listen, during the 2000-2013 timeframe, the S&P 500 was negative, which, of course, everybody wants to invest in. Now it's the brainchild. People like to quote Warren Buffett said that's the only place he would put his kids in. I've said this before. Warren Buffett is basically telling you you're not as good as me, and so you shouldn't even think about it. But the reality is, is in between those periods, there were opportunities. Small caps actually did really fairly well between 2000 and 2013. We know that there were incredible periods of growth for emerging markets during those periods. There were even periods of time in which the S&P 500 was getting small-term secular growth that basically allowed opportunities. So this is where, yeah, you would lose over 13 years, but there are opportunities to benefit during that time if you're willing to have a tactical or really a risk understood risk managed strategy going into that. Now, as Kirk said, fundamentals have become less and less important. You mentioned something, Kirk, about when the computers and algorithms say, hey, more bad news, but yet the market started to move up. High frequency trading, digital trading has definitely shifted some things. You know, they like to say, well, this time it's different. Yeah, in some ways, this time it is different. There is a lot less human decision making than there used to be. And we didn't have the computers to do that 20, 30, 40 years ago. So what happens is, is like anything that's programmed, there are parameters. It goes back to a story I told about 911. They, you know, when they had these 911 systems, when they were developed, they were programmed. And they actually, I forget what city it was, but they put in a million 911 calls. Just said, look, you know, we got to put in something. So let's put in a million 911 calls for the 911 system. Well, no one thought anything about that until all of a sudden there was an expansion of population. And then boom, the entire 911 system went down because they hit a million calls in one day. And the system couldn't handle that. So 
within any of these systems, there are human parameters that have been built around this that are going to create some rigidity. And that can be an opportunity for you. So welcome that negative data. All of a sudden, the markets went up. There were parameters around what they believe now become, you know, the system believes now is a value based on a number of different metrics that go into it that say now is a time to begin reallocating a purchasing type of scenario as opposed to a selling scenario. Whereas at the same time, you could have continued good news and all of a sudden the market's not going up anymore. Those parameters have now said now is a time based on a number of variable inputs. It is time to start taking our profits. And those systems, I hate to break it to you, are going to beat you every time. But you can look at those trend lines like Kirk was saying and say, look, you know what? Why is it? They call this the ceiling and the floor. You'll hear media and different groups talk about that ceiling and the floor. It's like, you know what? You may have heard the term, if it breaks through. What they're looking for, and you'll see these patterns, and actually in the broader spectrum of Bitcoin, you're starting to see that there, there seems to be some, look at the two top sides on this chart that's right in front of you. You know, yeah, one is slightly higher than the other, but not much. And we don't have a ton of data on Bitcoin to really go back and say, is this you know, a permanent trend or short term? We've talked about this before, too. Some charts, they love to show these trends and the chart only goes back like five years. It's not really going to give you enough data to tell you whether or not this is something that is long term predictable. But it does tell you at least to be alert that when it starts to hit these ceilings, if you're starting to see it bouncing along along those ceilings, Watch it really closely because, again, that's when you hear the terms of breakthrough. And you can get breakthroughs that if that happens, it means that there is other data in those variables and inputs that have finally said, you know what, it is now an opportunity to continue to buy even though we hit these thresholds. And that will drive the market further to new highs where you'll create new ceilings. But many times that doesn't occur. Many times you'll start to see a pattern where those ceilings or those floors start to bounce along. And as Kirk was saying, this is a great time to begin to think about maybe now is the moment to begin thinking about deploying cash or pulling cash off the table. As I said, because there are variables that can push through both those ceilings or those floors. And of course, if it crashes through the floor, you could lose a ton of money and it could crash through the ceiling and you could have taken profits early. So we're not giving you advice but again, this is one of those things that you can look at closely to begin to have some idea of whether or not it might be a time to give you a cyclical bull opportunity within a secular bear market or vice versa, a cyclical bear opportunity, even within a secular bull market to begin to you know, take some profits or buy some things on discount. It's not a bad idea to sit on cash and have those opportunities. And that's where, when you hit those ceilings or floors, might be a good time to free up some flexibility. As Warren Buffett has told you without telling you, he sits on billions of dollars of cash. And people have told him he's stupid. He goes, why? Because it gives me an opportunity to buy tomorrow if I see those valuations where I want to put the money. And so with all of these things, you have to be able to really be on top of it. And that's the problem a lot of times we see with do-it-yourself investing because most people just don't have the time or the technical wherewithal to be watching it close enough to take advantage of those things, which is why it does make sense to get help. Your average investing partner or professional out there, they're just putting you in models, modern portfolio theory, reallocate it, rebalance, blah, 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 let it go. They're not even going to have that flexibility. And that may be because, you know, again, they may be handcuffed. Like maybe they're told, 
top down. You can't be that flexible. You can't hold that cash. You can't buy in at this level. You have to stay with these constraints. But there are others out there, and I know some teams out there that you know do this might be communicating to you via a podcast you're listening to right now. I don't know. But they would have that flexibility to be able to and the time and the focus attention to look at those things and say, hey, here's a trend line. Fixed income is a great example, right, Kirk? I mean, what, a year ago, fixed income's going in the toilet. There was a time to get out of it when there was hitting certain trend lines before. And you're still hearing people tell you fixed income's awful. But what have you been saying for a couple of months? Now might be some opportunities again because we've started to see some patterns. Now, what fixed income, where you invest, those are different things that take a little bit more knowledge, investment, et cetera. But that's where having a partner that's looking at this could really be valuable to you in terms of your ability to be able to track those cyclical opportunities that happen within secular trend lines. The last thing I want to say, kind of a joke here, not throw anybody under the bus particularly, but they might have something to do with Gulf Sierra. But there is a running joke out there when, you know, you talked about think and saying, well, hey, we think Bitcoin's this. Well, other times Bitcoin's that. Guess what? There are some running jokes out there. When you are told to invest in something, ask yourself if they're telling you to invest right now, is that the time to do the opposite? There are jokes about that because, again, a lot of these firms have very vested interests in what they're communicating to you. We'll use the big short as an example. Morgan Stanley was literally betting against their own team saying that the mortgage crisis was real. Why? Morgan Stanley had billions and billions of investment in real estate and did not want to see that decline. Always be careful what you're hearing from those that are communicating to you recommendations when they are in the business of investing in that themselves. I'm going to just make one more comment here. You can take us home. So this week, the CPI did come out and it's at 3%. Imagine that. It's going down still. Who would have told you that it was going down? Let me think. Uh, Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. Might be someone you're listening to on a podcast currently. Yeah, it could be somebody like that. I think we said something, didn't we, Doug? I'm not saying us, you know, just somebody you might be listening to. Somebody looks like us, sounds like us, you know, looks like a duck, sounds like a duck. You know, I point this out because last month it was 4%. Now it's 3%. And it looks to me, based on stuff I'm seeing, next month it might even be 2%. So it brings up a very big question. We talked about the big question about a year ago is what they're going to do. Are they going to raise rates and put us into recession? Well, we haven't seen a recession. Don't know why. A lot of people feel like it's a recession. A lot of people don't, You know, depending on which part of the economy you're in. Like we talked about before, there's a lot of confusion about what's going on. But I think the thing to know is that the rate of inflation is dropping and it might even hit 0% this year. I'm of the opinion that the government data is managed or massaged. It's not entirely accurate, but you know, you could argue whether that's true or not. So I'm not sure it'll go to zero, but it should. It's very possible we could go to zero or even negative inflation rate in like the next six to nine months. It's hard to say if that's going to happen, but I think it's very possible that it does And I think it's just something to be aware of, because if that happens, then the big question is, is the Fed going to keep rates at 5%, five and a quarter, five and a half? They're talking about raising them this month. Don't know if that's going to happen. I think that if you look at history, and we had a great guest on the show, Mark Higgins, who I guess the episode probably won't be out for another month or so, but coming out with a new book, great episode. He's just talking about history and how history applies to the present. 
And one of the time periods that he talked about, I think, was the 20s. I think it was 19, 20, 21, 22. That there was a period much like this. And the geopolitical background was different. But the result of what we were seeing is the same, which is basically you, you have an economy with high inflation, raised rates, and then it dropped much the same way. So what's interesting is the Fed looks at history. They're no dummies. You could argue whether they are, but they're pretty smart people. So they look at history and they say, how are we going to react? Here's how history reacted to this. How are we going to do it different? I've mentioned this before on the show. Powell does not want to be Burns. He wants to be Volcker. Volcker is well known for killing inflation. Burns, not so highly looked on. He doesn't want to be Burns. So he's going to do whatever it takes to kill inflation because he values his legacy. You don't become a Fed chair because of the pay. You get to be Fed chair because of the legacy. You want to be remembered. You want people to remember Powell is the guy who killed inflation. So that's the bias in his mind. So if you have this lower inflation, the big question that's going to come in is what if we hit zero? What if we hit negative? What if we go to low ones? Whatever. Are they going to keep rates high? My thesis is they're going to keep rates high for a while. And I also think that the low inflation is also going to come back probably shortly thereafter, wherever it hits the bottom, it's probably going to start to come back a little bit. I think it probably should be in like the four to five percent range. I think that's probably more realistic, but it's hard to say because all this depends on whether we're going to recession. If we don't go into recession, then it's going to be really hard to imagine we have negative inflation for an extended period of time. If we go into recession, very easy to imagine that. So I think there's a lot is going to come down to whether we go into recession or not. And I think it's TBD at the moment. So, Doug, why don't you kind of wrap it up? Tell us where you can find more about you and we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here. Really important thing to think about, too, is that even if inflation comes down, is a reminder that that does not mean your prices are coming down. So if inflation is zero, I hate to break it there, but he thinks that they're going to get some relief. The prices you're paying, that just means they're not going to go any higher. We've had a tremendous bump in pricing. That is likely here to stay unless, as Kirk said, we get a negative inflationary period. And if that's the case, I want to go back to what you said about Powell versus Volcker. He does not want to make the mistake of a bullwhip effect on his decision making. He doesn't want to make an early decision and try to combat inflation and then find that, okay, it's down. So now I'm going to react the other direction and I'm wrong and it drives back up. So, you know, be prepared that he may come out and continue to direct the Fed to have some very aggressive inflation policy and interest rate policy to make sure that he is right and absolutely right. I don't have enough time to really talk about it today, but when it comes to that inflation, I wanted to point out for anybody that has kids that are going to be going to school, there has been some new information that has come out that's very interesting on inflation for colleges. And we can talk about this a lot you know, more in another conversation, but there's no question that inflation in colleges is high. You know, the average cost of tuition at a public four-year college is 37 times greater than it was in 1963. But what's been really interesting is that it's actually calmed down a bit in the past 10 years, whereas it was jumping at extremely high double-digit rates. I think this is also important education talk about another time, Kirk, between median versus mean and averages is that the average inflation rate since going back to 1963 has been well over a 6% increase. A lot of people, planners, are still using that. But college tuition inflation has actually come down significantly. In the last 10 years, the inflation rate has dropped by about 93%. That does not mean the cost went down 93%. It means the amount it was escalating has really declined. And there may be some signs that colleges have 
finally seen that they can no longer continue to increase their cost at the level they did. The biggest increases were in the 1980s, where there was a 121% increase in college tuition inflation in the 1980s. So if you do the math on that, that is averaging 12% per year. So a lot of the big push or increase in tuition has really been something that happened 30 years ago and drove this cost up. Now it's gone up since then, but, but that does not mean it's easy on your books. And we just talked about inflation and everything else going up and probably here to stay. And if that's the case, college just got a lot harder for the average family in America to be able to absorb that extra cost on top of food, clothing, water, shelter, utilities, et cetera. And so it was already an issue. We already had billions and trillion, or I'm sorry, trillions of dollars of student aid loans out there. A lot of those loans, as you, we talked about in the past couple of weeks, are now coming off of deferment into being due to have payments. Listen, don't get yourself into that trap. When you go into college, it is expensive. Most people are not prepared for what that means in their budget. It is, even though it's gotten better, it's still a lot. And if you want to put a plan in place where it's not going to compromise your future and your retirement, you got to start talking about that today, whether your kids are in single digits or whether you're right on the verge of college and you're trying to just now figure that out, get the information you need. Go to ProCollegePlanners.com. That's our website. Download the free checklist on college. Get to know your costs. And then again, if you want some help, not saying it's us, but feel free to reach out to someone. Maybe it is us through our website. You can reach us and we can answer some questions, find out if there's a way we can help you overcome the college cost problem. Doug, once again, love having you on the show. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. That's the show for this week. Thank you again for joining us on Money Tree Investing Podcast. My name is Kirk Chisholm, Wealth Manager of Innovative Advisor Group. We don't just manage your wealth, we make your life better. You can find more about me at InnovativeWealth.com. And of course, you can find me every week here on the show. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on the podcast app if you're choosing. You can also check out the show at MoneyTreePodcast.com. On the website, you'll have access to the show notes, resources, and the archive shows. Also, we're now on YouTube, so please check out our YouTube channel. When you're there, please subscribe and leave a comment. Lastly, please leave a short rating and comment on the podcast app of your choice. Oh, and don't forget, do your own research. This show is for informational use only. We're not telling you what to think, merely how to think about investing. We're also not selling any products or services, so do not consider this advice. If you have any problems with the show, I blame Poop. Please send him an email and express your feelings. If you're seeking financial advice, talk to an oracle or a fortune teller, maybe just a financial advisor. I'm one, but as I said earlier, I'm not selling anything, but I'm easy to find. Have a great week ahead, and remember, no one will care about your money like you do, so invest in your life. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at MoneyTreePodcast.com for more free investing resources.